Good morning, Eastgate Bible Church. It's quite frustrating to be preaching to a camera for two Sundays in a row. I would much rather be looking into your eyes, seeing the joy that Jesus' death and resurrection and the hope that it brings to you. But today I will have to suffice at looking down the lens of a camera. In this COVID age, when people have cold symptoms, they're unable to attend in person. But even though I'm restrained from being able to be there with you, I know that the word of God is not restrained. And so we're going to come before him in prayer now and ask that he might work powerfully through his word because the means by which it is communicated is insignificant. Heavenly Father, I am insignificant. I am just a servant of Jesus Christ, one who is called to be a steward of the mysteries of God. We pray that as we handle your word, we would handle it well. That we might proclaim the deep and wonderful things that you have made known to us. That as we have seen Jesus and his death, as we reflect upon that on Fridays today, we see him raised in victory over sin, death and Satan. And who gives his victorious resurrection life to those who call upon him in faith. Help us to see and respond with awe and faithfulness this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So on Friday, we looked at the death of Jesus Christ on a cross. Now, if you were there and you were looking upon Jesus on the cross, and particularly if you were an opponent of Jesus, it might have appeared to be the ultimate failure, the ultimate embarrassment. Yet Jesus' death on the cross was not a failure. In fact, it wasn't even a tangent to the plan of God. Jesus' death was the plan. Jesus himself, as is recorded in the Gospels, says in this way, the Son of Man must, it is necessary, essential, he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now Mark also records a similar quote in chapter 8 verse 31 where Jesus again saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, I've intentionally put those two quotes side by side because the way in which we would refer to time and days would suggest that those two verses contradict one another. One says he'll be raised on the third day. So if he's crucified on Friday, the first day, Saturday, the second day, Sunday, the third day. But the Mark account says, and be raised after three days, the way we, we handle time would say, well, he's crucified Friday. One day makes Saturday. Two make, days makes Sunday. Three days makes Monday. Yet in the first century, the way in which they would calculate time was inclusive of the day of which they start with. For example, speaking of what we would call tomorrow, they could say after two days or in two days. Now, we wouldn't say that. We wouldn't say about tomorrow in two days like Today, one day, tomorrow, two days. But that's how they handle time. 
So those two quotes do not actually communicate a different thing, even though they might express them in a way differently than the way that we would do it. There's another example in our own passage in chapter 20, verse 26. If you've got an ESV in front of you, it will say after eight days. If you've got an NIV in front of you, it will say one week later, because when you include the present day in your calculation of days, then one week becomes eight days. So I think it's important just to highlight that in case you come across it or somebody brings it to your attention and casts doubt upon your mind as whether the scriptures actually are consistent in the way in which they speak about the resurrection. But it, what we've seen is Jesus says, this must happen. It was essential that Jesus must die. Now that might seem like an unorthodox plan, but why did Jesus have to die? Even before he was born, the angel said to Joseph, speaking of Mary, said, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save the people of their sins. We're not left wondering how Jesus will save a people from their sins. Jesus himself in Mark chapter 10 verse 45 says, The Son of Man, that is Jesus himself, says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to lay down my life as a ransom for many. Or to quote the Apostle Paul in his famous summary of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as a first important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That's how Jesus saved a people from their sins. He died for their sins. Because what we get in response for our sin, that is our rebellion against God, our refusal to honour him as God, is death, eternal punishment, hell. Or to use the language of Romans chapter 6 verse 23, the wages of sin, what we earn by our sin is death. And Jesus came to bear that penalty of our sin on our behalf so that we don't have to do that by turning from our sin and turning to him and trusting in his death is satisfactory for my sin is how he deals with the sin of the world. Now even the average atheist is quite okay with the fact that Jesus Christ existed. They're quite okay with the fact that Jesus died on a cross. They might even take delight in the fact that Jesus died. But they might not be so comfortable with the claim that Jesus Christ was raised on the third day. There's no problem if he dies, everybody dies, but if Jesus Christ was genuinely raised, then we can't just think in simple terms about Jesus. We can't just think of him as being a good teacher or an important historical figure. We need to, if he is genuinely raised from the dead, as he said he would be, then we need to look at and embrace everything that is said about him everything about who he is, what he has done, and what he calls us to do in response to him. So today, as we look at John chapter 20, we're going to look at about the evidence which is there before us in 1 to 18. We're going to look at the believer's commission in 19 to 23, the believer's blessing in 24 to 29, and we're going to conclude with that you may have life in verses 30 to 31. So firstly, the evidence is there. 
Now I'll say up front, I'm going to spend more time speaking about the content of verses 19 to 31 than I do about the content of verses 1 to 18. Verses 19 to 31 talk about events which transpire after the resurrection of Jesus. Verses 1 to 18 speak about the resurrection account of Jesus. And so it's important that we verify that Jesus was actually raised from the dead for verses 19 to 31 to have any meaning or significance whatsoever. So where's my proof that Jesus was raised from the dead? Are you ready for it? I've got none. I have no proof. I'll define my term in a minute. There's no video footage of the resurrection of Jesus that I can play before you and you can say, well, there you go, there's substantial proof. I don't have a doctor's medical certificate declaring him to be deceased on the Friday and raised to new life on, on the Sunday. So I don't have proof in that sense. But if you're starting to worry, you think, man, what church have I come into? The pastor has just said there's no proof for the resurrection of Jesus. I may not have what you might call proof, but I do have rock-solid, conclusive evidence that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Think about it this way. Even in crimes that happen all around the world, a very, very small percentage of those would be settled upon by proof, as in like video footage of that crime taking place. More often than not, what they'll do is they will compile all of the evidence, and if all of the evidence points in a particular direction where they can conclusively say, I am certain this happened, they convict the criminal, and they state it as fact that these things took place. That is the way in which I can speak about the conclusive evidence of the resurrection, that when you put together all of the evidence, Everything that you would expect to be evident in surrounding our resurrection from Jesus is present right there before us. As a Christian, I certainly believe that the Bible and everything that it teaches is true. But I'm not going to presume upon that be the position of every single person who hears this message. So put yourself in the place of Judge Judy for a moment. Let me just put some of the, the case before you. Firstly, regarding his death. I mean, after all, a resurrection or being raised to life from death requires there to be a genuine, definite death. So let's have a look at the case for his death. Well, firstly, Jesus' crucifixion, it took place in a public place. There were crowds present who saw it with their own eyes. When the soldiers came, they were going to break the legs of them so that they would be able to deal with it quicker and sooner. When they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, but to be 100% certain, they pierced his side with a spear. When Joseph asked for the body of Jesus to have him uh, buried, Pilate was shocked that Jesus would be dead so early. So he actually got a Roman centurion to confirm that Jesus was actually dead. They weren't going to let him go unless he was definitely dead. These things, Jesus' death under a Roman cross, under Pontius Pilate, is recorded not just in the Bible, it is recorded in the secular historians of the time. Tacitus and Josephus both explicitly state that Jesus Christ died on a cross 
under under Rome under Pontius Pilate. Jesus' death is a biblical fact, but it's also a historically verifiable fact. But what about the resurrection? What's the case for the resurrection? Well, firstly, we see that the Jewish leaders, they remembered that Jesus said that he was going to be raised on the third day. They didn't want a bar of it, so they asked that they would have a, a troop of Roman soldiers surround the place where he was where he was buried to have the tomb totally sealed so that the disciples would not come and steal his body. Now, the disciples aren't going to steal his body. What we read in the, in the Bible accounts is that the disciples were so scared they weren't leaving anywhere. They were locked in a building behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. They thought, this is what's happened to Jesus. They're going to come after us. We're not going out. We don't want to be seen in any way associated with Jesus. Not only that, when we see the women who go out to the tomb on, early on the Sunday morning and not going out to see Jesus Christ risen from the dead, they're going there with spices expecting to embalm a corpse. They find an empty tomb. An angel tells them that Jesus is not here. He has indeed been raised. Both Peter and John see the empty tomb and come to the same conclusion as well. The soldiers are paid by the Jewish leaders to go about saying that the disciples stole the body. But we know they didn't. There's no chance they would have. They were being in fear of the Jews that something might happen to them. They're not going to come out and take on the Roman soldiers and steal a body and then expect to live in such a way that they would die proclaiming this thing that they knew to be a lie. Jesus appeared to the disciples. It says in 1 Corinthians, on one occasion, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at once, most of whom were still alive. And you could go and ask them, did you really, truly, Reggie did see Jesus Christ risen from the dead? And nothing accounts for the fact that the same disciples who didn't expect Jesus to be raised from the dead, who were locked away, hiding in fear that the Jews might come after them, then after claiming to have seen Jesus, no longer are they worried about what the Jews might associate them with Jesus. They are risking their life and limb to proclaim to all of the world that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And on top of that, the Jews and the Romans wanted to bring this to a complete and total end. They could have done that. If there was a body in that tomb, they, all they'd do is bring it out. And they were a gruesome people. They had no issue bringing out a corpse and say, look, here he is. Stop your lies. But the tomb was indeed empty. Even the secular historians, while they don't say that they saw Jesus raised from the dead, they do record that the disciples were claiming that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, isn't that exactly the type of evidence you would expect to see surrounding the events if Jesus Christ was actually raised from the dead? I think one of the key reasons why people so often dismiss Jesus being raised from the dead isn't because all of the evidence doesn't point in that direction, because it does. But because to accept that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead means you need to accept who Jesus Christ truly is what he said about himself, what the Bible says about him. Now, I know there'll be some people who would say, well, if I saw it for my own eyes, then that'd be enough. But I'm not sure why your witness to this account would be more important than the 500 plus other people 
who saw it and testified to it. But first we're going to look at some of the first people whom Jesus revealed himself to after he was raised. His, his 12 disciples, or 11 at this point in time, after Judas has gone and hung himself. We see the believers commissioned. I find it to be one of the most staggering facts of the Bible that come what we call Resurrection Sunday, a day of great celebration, that there are no disciples whatsoever who expected Jesus to be raised from the dead on that day. They didn't have it in their Google calendar. Guys, let's celebrate. Jesus is going to get raised today. They were mourning. They were gloomy. They were hiding in fear for they being associated with Jesus by the Jews. When the women reported to the disciples that, that they'd seen the empty tomb and the angels had said that Jesus was raised, they didn't even believe it. They thought they were hearing fairy tales from these ladies. So when you look at the Bible, nobody in their right mind would say the disciples made this up. But something changed their tune. Something turned them from being a group of timid people hiding in a locked away building, not wanting to be seen by anyone, not wanting anyone to make any connection between them and Jesus Christ, to them all of a sudden going out boldly to all of the world proclaiming that Jesus Christ has raised from the dead. What changed their tune was that they did indeed see Jesus risen from the dead. Verses 19, on the day, evening of that day, the first day of the week, which is what we call Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came in and stood amongst them and said, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Easter Sunday wasn't a day they were expecting to celebrate. They were locked away in fear. And somehow, by means which the scriptures don't tell us how, Jesus appeared amongst them in this locked room and says, Peace be with you. Now, peace be with you was a common greeting. It could just be a general greeting. But it could also mean a whole lot more than that. Remember, these disciples, all of them, at, when Jesus was arrested, basically abandoned him, left him behind, denied him. Peter denied him publicly three times. And as Jesus comes back amongst them, you think they might be a little bit worried. And he says, peace be with you. Or maybe it's because Jesus has died on the place of sinful mankind and he's raised in victory over sin, death and Satan. Therefore we can have peace with God and therefore he greets them with peace be with you. And I love the fact, without a single question, Jesus voluntarily offers. Say, take a look. look the hand, uh, the, the wounds in my hands and in my side. Take a look with your own eyes. Jesus deals with the very doubts they have. Jesus cares about our doubts that are hindering us coming to faith. Jesus will often deal directly with our doubts to call us to himself. Now in verses 21 to 23, it does raise a few questions that you may want to ask. And I'd encourage you to come have a chat to me if you have some questions about some things we might not have dealt with in full. But let's read them. Jesus said to them again, 
Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from them, it is withheld. Now, a lot of people consider this to be John's version of the Great Commission of Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Certainly similar in the sense of there being a, a being sent by Jesus. May not be the exact same thing, but it was an important message of Jesus. So it's very likely that he spoke a message of that nature on a number of occasions. And he says, just as the Father has sent me, in the same way I am sending you. And that's one of the two parts in these verses that might raise some questions. Because the way in which the Father sent Jesus was into the world to die on behalf of sinful mankind. Now surely he's not saying to the disciples, I'm sending you to die on behalf of sinners. Or that you are going to be the, the means by which salvation is secured. That's not the case. But this Jesus who said back in John chapter 15 verse 19, speaking of his disciples, he says, I have chosen you out of the world. You're not of the world. In the same sense which Jesus was not of the world. His kingdom is not of this world. He says, in the same way as I am not of this world, was sent into this world, to proclaim the message of the kingdom of God and the means of forgiveness, so too I send you, as people called out of the world, into the world to proclaim the kingdom of God and the means of forgiveness secured by Jesus' death and resurrection. We're not sent on their own. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. It is not your, your ability. It is not your communication skills. He says, this is the mission and here is the means by which it will make it effective. Receive the Holy Spirit. Now that's the other part that gets confusing because you think, doesn't the disciples or the apostles receive the Holy Spirit? Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. Yes, they do. It appears that Jesus is saying here, especially when you consider the parallel account in Luke chapter 24, that you will receive the Spirit. I am giving it to you. But as John, Jesus has already stated in John's Gospel, says, I won't send it to you until I return to the Father. So definitely we can see Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, the time when they are actually given the Holy Spirit. But here Jesus is promising that which he is going to give them very shortly. And in the parallel account, in Luke chapter 24, he specifically says he's going to clothe them with power from on high. Stay here in Jerusalem until that happens. And that takes place at Pentecost. Now, for us today, we don't have to delay. There is no wait between coming to faith in Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit. It says in, first, sorry, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, when you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, the guarantee and seal of our salvation. So we receive the Spirit, we are sent by the Spirit, we are given that sentness into this world to proclaim the kingdom and the means by which people's sins can be forgiven. That's the believer's commission. But there is also the believer's blessing expressed in verses 24 to 29. Now for reasons we don't know, Thomas wasn't present 
in the previous account when Jesus came into the building where they were, where they were locked. But he's heard about it from the other disciples. And he stands his ground and says, unless I see the wounds for myself, unless I get my dirty little fingers in them, get my hand on his side, I will never, ever believe. And you might think, oh, Thomas, that's a bit harsh, man. You've heard Jesus say that he'd be raised on the third day. Now you want to put your fingers in there? You want all this sort of proof and evidence? If anything, I think it's kind of unfair that we label him doubting Thomas. I mean, after all, none of the disciples expected Jesus to be raised. Every single one of the other disciples on the previous occasion had opportunity to, to see the wounds and the hands and in the side and in the feet. So there's nothing specifically doubtful about Thomas that is not the same for all of the other disciples. But now, a week later, they're in the same building, still, despite the fact that they'd seen Jesus, hiding in fear in a locked building. Jesus again appears amongst them, peace be with you. And without any request from Thomas, Jesus knows the very doubts and questions that he had. He says, Thomas, bring your finger over. Chuck it in there if you want. Get your hand, feel in my side. Now previously, Thomas has said, there is no way I will believe unless I see this. You might have reason why you say, there is no way I will believe in Jesus unless dot, 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 whatever that may be for you. I know when I said, there is no way I will believe, I didn't even have room for an unless or some any form of exception if something happened. I was like, I will not. It is ridiculous, I thought. Now, we don't even know if Thomas actually did put his fingers in, feel aside, it doesn't record that. The impression I seem to get in reading John chapter 20 is that as Thomas encountered Jesus Christ, all of a sudden, he didn't care about seeing the hands, putting his hands, touching it for himself. All his previous doubts came to nothing. Now, don't hear me for a second saying that Jesus is going to clarify all of your doubts specifically exactly the way that you want them. But what I can say is, he may, you may encounter him in such a way that whatever you thought was such an important doubt that had to be dealt with, that no longer bears any weight bears any importance because you have encountered him in such a way that you are convinced. Thomas's response to Jesus, one of the, the greatest statements about him recorded in the scriptures, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Thomas is not saying something out of surprise. He's not going, oh my Lord, oh my God. He's not saying the Lord is my God, as some people will have you believe, as though he's making some great statement about the Father and nothing about Jesus the Son at all. Now he's looking Jesus in the eye. He's speaking to Jesus and says, My Lord, my God. Literally it says, You are the Lord and the God of me. That's a big claim. That is one of the most clear, precise statements of the deity of Jesus Christ recorded in all of the Bible. And as that was directed towards Jesus, if Jesus was not the Lord, if he was not the God, that was blasphemy. 
and Jesus would rightly rebuke him. Yet Jesus receives these statements, these acts of worship. So when a Jehovah's Witness tells you in John chapter 1 verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Now, even though it's actually grammatically possible to translate it that way, it's not the only way to say the Word was God is also a, a grammatically possible way to translate it. In light of a statement like this, it is the right way to translate John chapter 1 verse 1. No Jehovah's Witness I've ever spoken to has been able to answer why it is that Thomas can speak of Jesus and say, you are the Lord and the God, and Jesus not rebuke him for that, but rather accepts that statement of himself. It's one of the most direct, indisputable statements about the deity of Christ. You could say it is the natural expression of what Jesus said of himself in John chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. He says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. How does Jesus say the Son himself is to be honoured? Just as or in the same way that we honour the Father. And then goes on to say, If you do not honour the Son like that, you do not honour the Father. Thomas saw Jesus. Thomas believed. He didn't just believe that Jesus was raised. He believed who Jesus was. He is the Son of God. The co-eternal second person of the Trinity. The one who has died for the sins of sinful mankind. All of us who have dishonoured God. Who have wanted to live in complete rebellious independence of him who was raised in victory and is sending his people to proclaim the kingdom and forgiveness in his name you and i may not have the same experience as thomas to see jesus christ physically risen and offer just look at his body and put your hands in have a feel but he does offer us something better he says to thomas have you believed because you've seen me blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus speaks of a greater blessing to believe without requiring to physically see him with your own eyes. He's like, anyone can do that. But there is great blessing to having believed, having not seen in that sense. You and I are either blessed because we have believed without seeing or if you haven't yet come to place your trust in Jesus you could be blessed you could even be blessed today having believed without having seen you could even be wondering oh what does it mean to believe what does it mean to to be blessed to believe in this way well if we consider that the problem that was being dealt with it was our rebellion against God, our failure to recognise that he is the God, the ruler, the king of all, and we have lived in opposition to him and we deserve death, then the solution we need is to turn from our rebellion, turn from our sin, turn to Jesus, trust in Jesus' work to bear the punishment for our sin and live with him as our great risen king. 
if you are considering this, it is very possible that God may be making his appeal to you this morning to come to me. To, to, you've seen the evidence. Now believe. To enjoy him, to know forgiveness of sins, know peace with God. That might resonate with you. You might be like, that's what I want right here and now. And praise God. Maybe God has, has already awakened you up to see your need for a saviour and what Jesus Christ has done for you. And he wants to give that to you. Or you might think, I think there's something to this. But I want to investigate that little bit more. Well, if you're in that second camp or in the first camp, I've got great news for you. you that you may have life. Verses 30 to 31 Immediately after saying that it is more blessed to believe, having not seen, we have this final sentence, this final two verses that we're looking at this morning, verses 30 and 31, where it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There are two words. Whereas the ESV has got now to begin that one sentence. Those two words are men, which means indeed or truly, or un, which means therefore. It's like there's a indeed and there's a therefore. Indeed, Jesus did do many other things, more than what could fit in all the libraries of this world. But in the context of saying there is blessing to believe without seeing, John has now said, therefore, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John says, this stuff that I have written down of Jesus Christ and of his life, I've written them down for the purpose that you might know that blessing of believing in him without seeing him with your eyes. That you might believe in him and that you might have life in his name. Because that was his belief and that was his belief under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's also my belief. And so as a result, if you're there at Eastgate Bible Church this morning, on the back table there are a number of copies of the full gospel of john that he wrote this very thing that he wrote that you might believe and have life in his name we'd love you to take one of those it is our gift to you because we believe they bear witness to who jesus is that you might believe that you might have life in his name that you might get jesus god's gift to you we want you to come to know him we want you to have life in his name not for our reputation, not for statistics or another notch on the belt. We don't save a single person. I've never saved somebody. Nobody in this church has ever saved somebody. Jesus Christ alone saves. Yet we, we give you and we want you to spend time to read his word. That he might save you. That you might see what he has done to save you. We don't want it for our recognition. We want it because it's what God's is best for you that you might have life in his name today resurrection sunday is a day to celebrate new life 
For those who have already placed their trust in Jesus, it's a day when we say, Jesus Christ has died for my sin. He has raised in victory. He will, when he returns, he will raise me to be with him and I will be with him forever where there'll be no sickness, no sadness and I'll enjoy all of his goodness forevermore. But it's also a day of salvation, a day when all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if that is you, I, I plead with you that you would believe in him that you would turn from your sin, turn to the one who has died in your place, who has rose to secure that and demonstrate his power to offer all that he says that he would do, that you might believe in him and have life in his name. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have done what we could never do to bring us into peace with God. Our sins are far too many. We thank you that there is no such thing as a, a limit of be, there being too much where we can max out our sin that your grace is no longer available. We thank you that we are told that while we were still sinners, not when we got good enough, while we were in the middle of our mess, Christ died for the ungodly to bring us to God. That he is raised in newness of life and in turning to those who turn to him and believe may have life in his name that resurrection life that only Jesus Christ can give. We give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.